Chapter Sixteen of She and Alan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. She and Alan by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Sixteen. Alan's Vision. The old chamberlain, Bilali, conducted us back to our camp. As we went, he discoursed to me of these Amahagger, of whom it seemed he was himself a developed specimen, one who threw back, perhaps tens of generations, to some superior ancestor who lived before they became debased. In substance, he told me that they were a wild and lawless lot, who lived amongst ruins or in caves, or some of them in swamp-dwellings, in small, separate communities, each governed by its pity headman, who was generally a priest of their goddess, Lulala. Originally they and the people of Resu were the same, in times when they worshipped the sun and the moon jointly. But thousands of years ago, as he expressed it, they had separated, the Resuits having gone to dwell to the north of the great mountain, whence they continually threatened the Lulalaites, whom, had it not been for Shiu commands, they would have destroyed long before. The Resuits, it seemed, were habitual cannibals, whereas the Lulalaite branch of the Yamagar only practised cannibalism occasionally, when, by a lucky chance, they got hold of strangers such as yourself watcher by night and your companions he added with meaning if their crime were discovered however hia she who commands punished it by death i asked if she exercised an active rule over these people he answered that she did not as she lacked sufficient interest in them only when she was angry with individuals she would destroy some of them by her arts as she had power to do if she chose most of them indeed had never seen her and only knew of her existence by rumour to them she was a spirit or a goddess who inhabited the ancient tombs that lay to the south of the old city whither she had come because of the threatened war with rezu whom alone she feared he did not know why he told me again moreover that she was the greatest magician who had ever been and that it was certain she did not die since their forefathers knew her generations ago still she seemed to be under some curse like the amahagger themselves who were the descendants of those who had once inhabited kor and the country round it as far as the sea coast and for hundreds of miles inland having been a mighty people in their day before a great plague destroyed them for the rest he thought that she was a very unhappy woman who lived with her own soul mourning the dead and consorting with none upon the earth i asked him why she stayed here whereat he shook his head and replied he supposed because of the curse since he could conceive of no other reason. He informed me also that her moods varied very much. Sometimes she was fierce and active, and others, by comparison, mild and low-spirited. Just now she was passing through one of the latter stages, 
perhaps because of the Rezu trouble, for she did not wish her people to be destroyed by this terrible person, or perhaps for some other reason with which she was not acquainted. When she chose, she knew all things, except the distant future. Thus she knew that we were coming, also the details of our march, and that we would be attacked by the Rezuites, who were going out to meet their returning company that had been sent afar to find a white queen. Therefore she had ordered him to go with soldiers to our assistance. I asked why she went veiled, and he replied, because of her beauty, which drove even savage men mad, so that in old days she had been obliged to kill a number of them. That was all he seemed to know about her, except that she was kind to those who served her well, like himself, and protected them from evil of every sort. Then I asked him about Rezu. He answered that he was a dreadful person, undying, it was said, like she who commands, though he had never seen the man himself and never wanted to do so. His followers, being cannibals and having literally eaten up all those that they could reach, were now desirous of conquering the people of Lulala, that they might eat them also at their leisure. Each other they did not eat, because dog does not eat dog, and therefore they were beginning to grow hungry, although they had plenty of grain and cattle of which they used the milk and hides. As for the coming battle, he knew nothing about it or what would happen, save that she who commands said that it would go well for the Lulalaites under my direction. She was so sure that it would go well that she did not think it worth while to accompany the army, for she hated noise and bloodshed. It occurred to me that perhaps she was afraid that she too would be taken captive and eaten, but I kept my reflection to myself. Just then we arrived at our camp-house, where Bilali bade me farewell, saying that he wished to rest as he must be back at dawn with litters, when he hoped to find us ready to start. Then he departed. Umslopogas and Hans also went away to sleep, leaving me alone, who, having taken my repose in the afternoon, did not feel drowsy at the moment. So lovely was the night indeed that I made up my mind to take a little walk during the midnight hours, after the manner of the Amahagger themselves, for having now been recognized as generalissimo of their forces, I had little fear of being attacked, especially as I carried a pistol in my pocket. So off I set strolling slowly down what seemed to have been a main street of the ancient city, which in its general appearance resembled excavated Pompeii, only on an infinitely larger scale. As I went, I meditated on the strange circumstances in which I found myself. Really, they tempted me to believe that I was suffering from delusions, and perhaps all the while, in fact, lay stretched upon a bed in the delirium of fever. That marvellous woman, for instance, even rejecting her tale of miraculously extended life, which I did. What was I to make of her? I did not know, except that wondrous as she was, it remained clear that she claimed a great deal more power than she possessed. This was evident from her tone in the interview with the captains, 
and from the fact that she had shuffled off the command of her tribe onto my shoulders. If she were so mighty, why did she not command it herself and bring her celestial or infernal powers to bear upon the enemy? Again, I could not say, but one fact emerged, namely that she was as interesting as she was beautiful and uncommonly clever into the bargain. But what a task was this that she had laid upon me to lead into battle with a foe of uncertained strength, a mob of savages probably quite undisciplined, of whose fighting qualities I knew nothing, and whom I had no opportunity of organizing. The affair seemed madness, and I could only hope that luck or destiny would take me through somehow. To tell the truth, I believed it would, for I had grown almost as superstitious about Sikali and his great medicine as was Hans himself. Certainly, the effect of it upon those captains was very odd, or would have been had not the explanation come to me in a flash. On the first night of our meeting, as I have described, I showed this talisman to Asha as a kind of letter of credentials, and now I could see that it was she who had arranged all the scene with the captains, or their tribal magician in order to get her way about my appointment to the command. Everything about her conduct bore this out, even her feigning ignorance of the existence of the charm and leaving it to Hans to suggest its production, which perhaps she did by influencing his mind subconsciously. No doubt, more or less, it fitted in with one of those nebulous traditions which are so common amongst ancient savage races, and therefore once shown to her confederate or confederates would be accepted by the common people as a holy sign after which the rest was easy such an obvious explanation involved the death of any illusions i might still cherish about this arab lady asha and it is true that i parted with them with regret as we all do when we think we have discovered something wonderful in the female line but there it was, and to bother any more about her, her history and aims seemed useless. So, dismissing her and all present anxieties from my mind, I began to look about me and to wonder at the marvellous scene which unfolded itself before me in the moonlight, that I might see it better, although I was rather afraid of snakes which might hide among the stones, by an easy ascent I climbed a mount of ruins, and up the broad slope of a tumbled massive wall, which from its thickness I judged must have been that of some fort or temple. On the crest of this wall, some seventy or eighty feet above the level of the streets, I sat down and looked about me. Everywhere around me stretched the ruins of the great city, now as fallen and as deserted as Babylon herself. The majestic loneliness of the place was something awful. Even the vision of companies and battalions of men crossing the plain towards the north with the moonlight glistening on their spear points did little to lessen this sense of loneliness. I knew that these were the regiments which I was destined to command, travelling to the camp where I must meet them, but in such silence did they move that no sound came from them 
even in the deathly stillness of the perfect night, so that almost I was tempted to believe them to be the shadow ghosts of some army of old Kor. They vanished, and musing thus, I think, I must have dozed. At any rate, it seemed to me that of a sudden the city was as it had been in the day of its glory. I saw it brilliant, with a hundred colors. Everywhere was color, on the painted walls and roofs, the flowering trees that lined the streets, and the bright dresses of the men and women, who by thousands crowded them and the marts and squares. Even the chariots that moved to and fro were colored, as were the countless banners which floated from palace walls and temple tops. The enormous place teemed with every activity of life, brides being born to marriage and dead men to burial, squadrons marching, clad in glittering armor, merchants chaffering, white-robed priests and priestesses passing in procession. Who or what did they worship, I wondered? children breaking out of school, grave philosophers debating in the shadow of a cool arcade, a royal person making a progress, preceded by runners and surrounded by slaves, and lastly the multitudes of citizens going about the daily business of life. Even details were visible, such as those of officers of the law chasing an escaped prisoner who had a broken rope tied to his arm, and a collision between two chariots in a narrow street, about the wrecks of which an idle mob gathered as it does today if two vehicles collide, while the owners argued, gesticulating angrily, and the police and grooms tried to lift a fallen horse onto its feet. Only no sound of the argument or anything else reached me. I saw, and that was all. The silence remained intense, as well it might do, since those chariots must have come to grief thousands upon thousands of years ago. A cloud seemed to pass before my eyes, a thin, gauzy cloud, which somehow reminded me of the veil that Asha wore. Indeed, at the moment, although I could not see her, I would have sworn that she was present at my side, and, what is more, that she was mocking me, who had set her down as so impotent a trickstress, which doubtless was part of the dream. At any rate, I returned to my normal state, and there about me were the miles of desolate streets, and the thousands of broken walls, and the black blots of roofless houses, and the wide, untenanted plain bounded by the battlemented line of encircling mountain crests. And, above all, the great moon shining softly in a tender sky. I looked and thrilled, though oppressed by the drear and desolate beauty of the scene around me, descended the wall and the ruined slope, and made my way homewards, afraid even of my own shadow for I seemed to be the only living thing among the dead habitations of immemorial Kor. Reaching our camp, I found Hans awake and watching for me. "'I was just coming to look for you, Baas,' he said. "'Indeed, I should have done so before. Only I knew that you had gone to pay a visit to that tall white missus who ties up her head in a blanket and thought, that neither of you would like to be disturbed. Then you thought wrong, 
I answered, and what is more, if you had made that visit, I think it might have been one from which you would never have come back. Oh, yes, Baas, sniggered Hans. The tall white lady would not have minded. It is you who are so particular, after the fashion of men whom heaven made very shy. Without deigning to reply to the jibs of Hans, I went to lie down, wondering what kind of bed poor Robertson occupied that night, and soon fell asleep, as fortunately for myself I have the power to do, whatever my circumstances at the moment. Men who can sleep are those who do the work of the world and succeed, though personally I have had more of the work than of the success. I was awakened at the first grey dawn by Hans, who informed me that Bilali was waiting outside with litters, also that Goroko had already made his incantations and doctored Umslopogas and his two men for war after the Zulu fashion, when battle was expected. He added that these Zulus had refused to be left behind to guard and nurse their wounded companions, and said that rather than do so they would kill them. Somehow, he informed me, in what way he could not guess, this had come to the ears of the white lady who hid her face from men because it was so ugly, and she had sent women to attend to the sick ones, with word that they should be well cared for. All of this proved to be true enough, but I need not enter into the details. In the end, off we went. I, in my litter, following Bilalis, with an express and a repeating rifle, and plenty of ammunition for both. And Hans, also well armed, in that which had been sent for Umslopogas, who preferred to walk with Goroko and the two other Zulus. For a little while Hans enjoyed the sensation of being carried by somebody else, and lay upon the cushion smoking with a seraphic smile and addressing sarcastic remarks to the bearers, who fortunately did not understand them. Soon, however, he wearied of these novel delights, and, as he was still determined not to walk until he was obliged, climbing on to the roof of the litter, astride of it he sat as though it were a horse, looking for all the world like a toy monkey on a horizontal stick. Our road ran across the level, fertile plain, but a small portion of which was cultivated, though I could see that at some time or other, when its population was greater, every inch of it had been under crop. Now it was largely covered by trees, many of them fruit-bearing, between which mendered streams of water, which once, I think, had been irrigation channels. About ten o'clock we reached the foot of the encircling cliffs, and began the climb of the escarpment, which was steep, tortuous, and difficult. By noon we reached its crest, and here found all our little army encamped, and, except for the sentries, sleeping, as seemed to be the invariable custom of these people in the daytime. I caused the chief captains to be awakened, and with them made a circuit of the camp, reckoning the numbers of the men, which came to about 3,250 and learning what I could concerning them and their way of fighting. Then, accompanied by Umslopogas and Hans, with the Zulus as a guard, also by three of the head captains of the Amahagger, I walked forward to study the lie of the land. 
Coming to the further edge of the escarpment, I found that at this place two broad-based ridges, shaped like those that spring from the boles of a certain tropical forest trees, ran from its crest to the plain beneath a gentle slope. Moreover, I saw that on this plain, between the ends of the ridges, an army was encamped, which, by the aid of my glasses, I examined and estimated to number at least ten thousand men. This army, the Amahagger captains informed me, was that of Resu, who they said intended to commence his attack at dawn on the following morning, since the people of Resu, being sun-worshippers, would never fight until their god appeared above the horizon. Having studied all there was to see, I asked the captains to set out their plan of battle, if they had a plan. The chief of them answered that it was to advance halfway down the right-hand ridge to a spot where there was a narrow flat piece of ground, and there await attack, since at this place their smaller numbers would not so much matter, whereas these made it impossible for them to assail the enemy. But suppose that Razor should choose to come up to the other ridge and get behind you. What would happen then? I inquired. He replied that he did not know. His ideas of strategy being, it was clear, of a primitive order. Do your people fight best at night or in the day? I went on. He said undoubtedly at night. Indeed, in all their history, there was no record of their having done so in the daytime. And yet you propose to let Rezo join battle with you when the sun is high? Or, in other words, to court defeat? I remarked. Then I went aside and discussed things for a while with Umslopogas and Hans, after which I returned and gave my orders, declining all argument. Briefly these were that in the dusk before the rising of the moon our Amahagger must advance down the right-hand ridge in complete silence and hide themselves among the scrub which I saw grew thickly near its root. A small party, however, under the leadership of Goroko, whom I knew to be a brave and clever captain, was to pass halfway down the left-hand ridge and there light fires over a wide area, so as to make the enemy think that our whole force had encamped there. Then, at the proper moment, which I had not yet decided upon, we would attack the army of Rizu. The Amahagger captains did not seem pleased with this plan, which I think was too bold for their fancy and began to murmur together. Seeing that I must assert my authority at once, I walked up to them and said to their chief man, Hearken, my friend, by your own wish, not mine, I have been appointed your general, and I expect to be obeyed without question. From the moment that the advance begins, you will keep close to me and to the black one, and if so much as one of your men hesitates or turns back, you will die and I nodded towards the axe of Umslopogas. Moreover, afterwards she who commands will see that others of you die, should you escape in the fight. Still they hesitated. Thereon, without another word, I produced Sikali's great medicine and held it before their eyes, with the result that the sight of this ugly thing did what even the threat of death could not do. They went flat on the ground, every one of them, and swore by Lulala and by she who commands her priestess that they would do all I said, however mad it seemed to them. Good, I answered. Now go back and make ready, and for the rest, 
By this time tomorrow we shall know who is or is not mad. From that moment till the end I had no more trouble with these Amahagger. I will get on quickly with the story of this fight, whereof the preliminary details do not matter. At the proper time Goroko went off with two hundred and fifty men and one of the two Zulus to light the fires, and, at an agreed signal, namely the firing of two shots in rapid succession by myself, to begin shouting and generally make as much noise as they could. We also went off with the remaining three thousand, and before the moon rose, crept as quietly as ghosts down the right-hand ridge. Being such a silent folk, who were accustomed to move at night, and could see in the dark almost as well as cats, the Amahagger executed this manoeuvre splendidly, wrapping their spear-blades in bands of dry grass, lest light should glint on them, and betray our movements. So, in due course, we came to the patch of bush, where the ridge widened out about five hundred yards from the plain beneath, and there lay down in four companies or regiments, each of them about seven hundred and fifty strong. Now the moon had risen, but because of the mist which covered the surface of the plain, we could see nothing of the camp of Rezu, which we knew must be within a thousand yards of us, unless indeed it had been moved, as the silence seemed to suggest. This circumstance gave me much anxiety, since I feared lest abandoning their reputed habits, these Rezuites were also contemplating a night attack. Umslopogas too was disturbed on the subject, though because of Goroko and his men, whose fires began to twinkle on the opposing ridge something over a mile away, they could not pass up there without our knowledge. Still, for aught I knew, there might be other ways of scaling this mountain. I did not trust the Amahagger, who declared that none existed, since their local knowledge was slight, as they never visited these northern slopes, because of their fear of Rezu. Supposing that the enemy gained the crest and suddenly assaulted us in the rear, the thought of it made me feel cold down the back. While I was wondering how I could find out the truth, Hans, who was squatted behind a bush, suddenly rose and gave the rifle he was carrying to the remaining Zulu. Baas, he said, I am going to look and find out what those people are doing, if they are still there and then you will know how and when to attack them. Don't be afraid for me, Baas. It will be easy in that mist, and you know I can move like a snake. Also, if I should not come back, it does not matter, and it will tell you that they are there. I hesitated, who did not wish to expose the brave little Hottentot to such risks. But when he understood, Umslopogas said, let the man go. It is his gift and duty to spy, as it is mine to smite with the axe, and yours to lead, Makumasan. Let him go, I say. I nodded my head, and having kissed my hand in his silly fashion in token of much that he did not wish to say, Hans slipped out of sight, saying that he hoped to be back within an hour. Except for his great knife, he went unarmed, who feared that if he took a pistol, he might be tempted to fire it and make a noise. End of chapter 16 of She and Alan by H. Ryder Haggard
Read by Lars Rolander.